I always struggle, I, I suppose, because I'm a political scientist and a bit of a, a, a reluctant or a disappointed liberal. Whenever I talk about religion, I feel uncomfortable. All of us are disappointed liberals. <laughs> well, well, I'm very, I'm very... The global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. I stand before you as a representative of the American people to deliver a message of friendship and hope and love. That is why I chose to make my first foreign visit a trip to the heart of the Muslim world. Our vision is one of peace, security, and prosperity in this region and all throughout the world. Our goal is a coalition of nations who share the aim of stamping out extremism and providing our children a hopeful future that does honor to God. Donald Trump there speaking during his first foreign visit as president, uh, where he went to Saudi Arabia to, to speak to a room full of kings, princes, presidents. During his speech he hit on all the big themes, all the greatest hits, regional security, Iran, terrorism, and of course, religion. But this has been a particularly turbulent time, both before and after Trump's visit, the reverberations of the popular protests in 2011 and 2012 still impact regional politics but there are a host of other issues as well a bloody brutal war in Yemen another bloody and brutal war in Syria fluctuations in the oil market and the rise to prominence of a new crown prince in Saudi Arabia who's seeking to consolidate his rule through taking all sorts of extraordinary measures including a blockade on its neighbour Qatar and the imprisonment of several of the wealthiest people on earth and members uh, and and other members of the royal family. What, what are we to make of all this? Well, today we are joined by an absolutely fantastic expert on this topic, Ambassador Tanzin Ahmed, who, during a long and distinguished career for the Indian Foreign Service, served as ambassador to several West Asian countries, including Kuwait, Iraq, Yemen, uh, and then Saudi Arabia and Oman. Over the next two episodes. The ambassador provides us with an extraordinary tour de force of the issues of concern in the region. We discuss recent political developments as well as the cultural and political backdrop to these. I began by asking Ambassador Talmans to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about his career. Okay, I'm Talmiz Ahmed. I used to be in the Indian Foreign Service. I joined in 1974 
I have served in several West Asian missions. Uh, I started my career in Kuwait in 1976, went to Baghdad, went to Sana'a in Yemen. Then I was Consul General in Jeddah. And later on, I was uh, head of the Gulf Division in the Ministry of External Affairs. I became ambassador to Saudi Arabia in year 2000. And then I was ambassador to Oman in 2003. I came back to India and served in the Ministry of Petroleum. In 2007, I went to Abu Dhabi as the ambassador and then went back to Saudi Arabia as ambassador in 2010. I retired from foreign service in 2011. I worked in the corporate sector for three years. And now I'm a full-time academic. I'm anchored in a private university in Pune, India, uh, where I hold a chair in international studies. I've written three books on various aspects of West Asia, and I also write a lot for our newspapers and for academic journals. And I appear on television quite frequently to discuss issues relating to West Asia. Uh, I just wondered if there was a reason why you, you focused on West Asia in particular. Yeah, it's not a choice. In our system, you're allocated a language and uh, you go to the station where you learn the language. And it was therefore not something that I had to seek. It was something that my ministry gave me. But once I started my career, I felt that it was very useful to specialize in the region. It was a very, very dynamic region and a region of great importance to India. And therefore, I continued to go back. In between, at various points, I was posted to other places such as New York, uh, London, and Pretoria. I opened the Indian High Commission in Pretoria in 1994. But because of my experience and my expertise and my personal interest, I used to be going, you know, I used to go back to West Asia. But I, but after 9-11, I took a personal decision to stay on in West Asia because I realized that the implications of what had happened would reverberate for several decades to come and would impinge on India's interests. And hence, I decided that with my expertise and knowledge and my experience, I should stay on in the region. Once you have decided to stay on, you don't choose uh, your post. You can only take those posts that are available. And hence, I went to Oman and uh, I also went to Abu Dhabi and later came back to Saudi Arabia. You, uh, but I, I, but you know, it didn't matter where I was located. I used to take interest in the developments of the region as a whole. For example, I followed all matters relating to, to jihad, political Islam and jihad, and that is, uh, you know, trans-regional. And later I followed the events relating to the Arab Spring, and that was trans-regional as well. Also, the books that I have written, Reform in the Arab World in 2005, Children of Abraham at War in 2010, and then Islamic uh, Challenge in West Asia in 2013, all of them pertain to the entire region and not to any particular country. Well, let me, let me ask you about that period then, because over the past seven years, since the Arab Spring, as you mentioned, the, there's been a particularly turbulent time in the Middle East. Uh, and in the news, I don't know what the, the press covers in India, uh, but in, in the news in, in Canada and in, in the UK, we've heard... Uh, you know a lot about understandably a lot about the issues in in Syria in, in Egypt Palestine uh, but in Tunisia and so on but can you give us an overview about what we haven't seen in the press which is the major events uh, in the Gulf region since that time 
the problem with uh, with newspaper coverage is that you find daily reports and you find daily reports some of them are written by people who are distinguished but what the reader misses is the absence of uh, continuity the ability to be able to see events in perspective you know uh, i mean newspaper reports tend to be anecdotal and tend to be immediate and hence very often readers who don't have specialist interest or even specialist knowledge uh, are confused about a series of events that are taking place so every day you get in your newspaper some report of some bombardment or some murder or some killing or some war or some extreme statement and you are bewildered but at the same time you get a very negative view about the region as a whole about the people particularly the muslim people and this has become a very major issue in western countries that there is a burgeoning islamophobia because these events have not been adequately explained and or even understood and there are numerous contentions that take place on a daily basis without the fundamental reasons being explained to the people concerned now according to me the main area the main impulse for what is happening in west asia today is the inability of the region's leaders i mean the i mean you know none of the countries in west asia has been able to throw off the authoritarian yoke every part of the world today has some level of popular participation except the arab world so you have all the way from morocco up to yemen except for the small and uh, you know a significant exception of tunisia every arab country has an authoritarian system authoritarianism means a number of things you normally have extremely coercive systems in place you have rampant corruption the entire effort of the leadership is to protect itself and to sustain itself they use national resources in order to co-opt constituencies rather than uh, you know focus on the on, i mean on the welfare of the people there is no desire whatsoever to expand popular participation the second issue and therefore in the absence of popular participation you have paranoid regimes that are able to pursue conflicts and demonize other partners i mean you know other neighbors on the basis that you you are threatened yet you have you have existential threat the principal threat is not from your neighbors the principal threat is domestic because you have aspirations of your people that have not been fulfilled and as a result you find that these are regimes that are very insecure and therefore extremely paranoid coming to 2011 you find that saudi arabia was the one that was most insecure in spite of the fact that iran had been subject to sanctions and indeed by 2010 had sanctions both on its oil uh, production as well as on its banking system saudi arabia felt a deep sense of strategic vulnerability vis-a-vis uh, iran and was concerned that iran's influence was expanding across the region and it therefore envisaged even the concept of a shia crescent 
looking at the entire Shia community as a monolithic community that is influenced by and controlled from Tehran. This is the root cause of all the issues that we have seen. After 9-11, when Hosni Mubarak fell, Saudi Arabia lost its security partner. Then you had the agitation for reform in Bahrain and where you have a majority Shia community. This agitation had no sectarian value whatsoever and had hardly any evidence of Iranian influence in this regard. It was largely a domestic event. But, uh, but as far as Saudi Arabia was concerned, it saw this as one more attempt that if these Shia were to be empowered, you would have a scenario of, uh, of, uh, of Iranian influence penetrating Bahrain, which is its neighbor, and therefore they would have reached the Arabian Peninsula itself. It is in this background that Iran, uh, that Saudi Arabia decided to confront Iran in the various theaters of its influence, starting with Syria, and saw this ruler of Syria not as a Baathist or as a strategic partner of Iran going back 40 years, but merely as a Shia leader, and therefore engineered, uh, uh, you know, they engineered a massive Salafi uprising in order to change the regime in Damascus. It had hoped at that time that the United States would bomb the regime out of existence as it had done earlier in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and in Libya. But since Obama did not oblige, Saudi Arabia, along with Qatar and Turkey, had to support militia fighting on the ground. This is the background to the Syrian conflict. This is the regional intervention in domestic issues. Similarly, you have a scenario in Yemen where you saw a purely domestic uh, situation where a marginalized community was seeking its own place in the political and economic order. But Saudi Arabia saw this as one more example of a Shia empowerment or a Shia upsurge which, if successful, would have, uh, would have brought Iran to its uh, very doorstep because it shares 1,400 kilometers border with Yemen. Therefore, you have these two murderous, extremely destructive conflicts that are going on. These are proxy conflicts between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and uh, they have been entirely shaped in sectarian terms. This is the background to the scenario that we have now in West Asia. Okay, that, that's, a, that's a really uh, helpful overview. If I could just uh, um, clarify a few things, because you, I think you said to, th made sort of three, identified three main dynamics there. First being the persistence of authoritarianism. Uh, and second, that, that uh, Saudi Arabia and presumably the other Gulf monarchies are, um, feel very insecure about the regime. Um, not, not, not just. And I think you said that they were primarily concerned with internal uh, threats rather than external threats. But, but, but then you're you're also saying that that the way they've approached regional politics has been through the the lens of uh, of looking at external threats, particularly the Saudi Iranian uh, division or the which is so. 
how, how do those all add up together? How, um, perhaps we could talk about the persistence of authoritarianism in a moment, but if Saudi Arabia is primarily concerned with its own regime survival, why then is it seeking to confront Iran uh, overseas in proxy wars? Very clearly, Saudi Arabia's principal concern is regime survival, number one. They, were, they are deeply worried that their population may be seduced by political Islam on the one hand, uh, you know, uh, the various reform movements that have been, uh, that have been, uh, that have been active in Saudi Arabia since the early 1990s, the so-called Sahwa movement. So they are concerned about the fact that their young people might wish to have a political order that is transparent, that is accountable, and that includes them in decision-making. So this is the key. Now, what Saudi Arabia has done is by shifting attention to Iran, it has mobilized domestic opinion against the Iranian foe, suggesting that Iran has the agenda to promote its own sectarian uh, you know, doctrine across the Muslim world, and assume leadership of Islam on the one hand, and on the other hand, it has hegemonic intentions. It wants to strangle Iran, I mean, you know, strangle Saudi Arabia by mobilizing its minority Shia communities in different parts of the region. Saudi Arabia's principal concern as foreign affairs experts, we know, is strategic vulnerability. It is concerned that a major neighbor is acquiring so much power and so much influence and is likely to be very alluring as far as the other countries in the, and the other peoples in the region are concerned. Now, having mobilized, having this concern relating to strategic vulnerability and having domestic concerns with regard to the demand for reform, Saudi Arabia's principal approach in demonizing Iran was to mobilize domestic community support against Iran. Now, Saudi Arabia being, being wedded to Wahhabiya has a very, it is, it is inherent. I mean, the anti-Shia discourse is inherent in Wahhabiya. And this remains to this day. Therefore, all, therefore, it is not difficult for the kingdom to mobilize its own people against Iran demonizing Iran on doctrinal as well as strategic basis. Today, many Saudis who have very little knowledge of international affairs and do not have access to open material about what is happening in the region are fully convinced that Iran is going to spread its Shia doctrines all among the Sunni communities and that Iran has hegemonic intention. For example, many of them are convinced that the Houthis are going to be the new Hezbollah because there is a sectarian mindset. The sectarian mindset motivates the leadership as well as the people of the kingdom. And it is this sectarian mindset that the leadership has tapped into in order to mobilize support against Iran. Well, that, that's a really helpful uh, analysis that you put those two things together. I just want to clarify for the, for the listeners if, uh, if they're not familiar with uh, Wahhabi. Uh, and uh, you're talking about different and the competition with different forms of political Islam uh, that, uh, oh, maybe you, 
we could uh, explain simply the difference between uh, what what we call Wahhabism. Wahhabia is Wahhabia is an 18th century reform doctrine which emerged in from the heartland of Saudi Arabia, from the heartland of the Arabian Peninsula. It was preached by a certain religious scholar called Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahhab. He was deeply concerned that uh, that religion, the practice of religion, had descended into superstition uh, in the shape of veneration of saints and had moved very far away from the core doctrines of Islam that had only the one true God who could be worshipped. They, he saw, for example, a lot of superstitions relating to faith healers, a veneration of saints, and various other aberrations as he saw them. Now, this would have been merely a religious reform movement, but for the fact that a local ruler, a local uh, chieftain from the Ali Saud family affiliated his uh, family and political uh, entered into a politico-religious affiliation with this preacher on the basis that he would carry out conquests in the Arabian Peninsula in the name of Islam, in the name of this reform doctrine. So the, there was a bargain, a bargain in 1744 in terms of which this would not be simple marauders who would be devastating the region they would have religious zeal backing them. In turn, so as he would spread the doctrines of this, these reform doctrines, he would get full political support from religion. This was a very unique scenario in terms that a, what, there have been otherwise numerous conflicts in the Arabian Peninsula, but in modern times, this was perhaps the first one that married religious reform along with political ambition. This is the background. Now, what has happened is the royal family of Ali Saud has never given up or diluted its affiliation with Wahhabiyya. Wahhabiyya has several aspects. The most important is the spiritual aspect and its doctrinal aspect, which is the stuff of for religious scholars. Religious scholars in the various Islamic universities study these matters from a certain perspective and point of view. In that sense, Wahhabiya is one among several other religious schools and it, it has no public or political value. The political value is imparted to Wahhabiya because of its use as a coercive instrument by the royal family of Saudi Arabia. They are not concerned about the doctrinal aspects or the religious or spiritual aspects. They are concerned with certain social and moral aspects pertaining to public life. It is in this background that the real impact of Wahhabiya is felt by people on day-to-day -day basis in terms of restrictions on women and gender. So there are three aspects in this regard. Number one, that their women have to be modestly clothed. Number two, there are restrictions on their movement. Number three, they can, there has to be gender segregation, that women cannot be with men who are not their relatives of the first degree. All of this is encompassed in the guardian system 
in terms of which a woman has no status or right or dignity of her own. She is at all times a ward of a male relative. Uh, it could be her father, it could be her husband, or it could be her son. This is the scenario. This is what impacts on people on daily basis. In order to enforce some of the more rigid and non-tolerant and non-accommodative aspects of ABIA, you have institutions set up in the country that carry out uh, the, you know, with their zeal, they intrude into public life, into private life as well. So this is the coercive force. I have seen, I personally believe Wahhabia is primarily a, a source. It is an instrument of coercion rather than a belief system uh, which is anchored within Islam. It is non-tolerant. Now, as a result of this, you have over the years uh, the kingdom with its uh, preachers and with its funding created an alternative kind of Islam that is narrow, that is rigid, that is non-tolerant and that, com that confronts some of the traditional aspects of Islam which are part of popular Islam or part of Sufism as well. So you have a scenario which has now become political. It is political at home in the shape of coercion in support of an authoritarian order and it is also political abroad in the sense that you build up constituencies of support in different countries on the basis of the kind of Islam that you have preached and propagated. This is the background to Wahhabiya. There are two other aspects of political Islam or, or they are they, they, these three manifestations of political Islam are all within the Sunni fold. The first is Wahhabiya that I have just explained. The second is the Muslim Brotherhood. This is an activist movement that believes that to imbue a political order with the principles of Islam. But the principles of Islam that they are talking about are those that they seek to marry with the normal, uh, with the modern day grammar of politics, that is constitutionalism, uh, political parties, free elections, then, uh, then, then respect for human rights, uh, respect for women and minorities. So it is genuine, that is, it is generally a rather modern uh, political discourse which they are seeking to promote. However, in the authoritarian systems that you have within the Arab world, it is impossible for this movement to propagate its point of view freely. And even for the short period that the Muslim Brotherhood had come to power in Egypt, the Gulf countries and the armed forces of Egypt were able to ensure that they are uh, that a coup d'etat has been engineered and they have been either killed or put behind bars or have gone into exile. The third manifestation of political Islam within Sunni Islam is jihad. Jihad borrows a lot of its doctrinal sources from Wahhabiya but goes beyond Wahhabiya in many respects. And uh, Wahhabiya used to be uh, a very quietist. It is quietist in the sense that political activism is the prerogative of the ruler. 
and the duty of the ruled is to give loyalty and obedience to the ruler while the ruler looks after them provides them with security and looks after their welfare in the case of muslim brotherhood it is an activist doctrine jihad too is an activist doctrine jihad believes that the islamic world and islam the faith are under attack from the west and from non believers within islam and therefore they have to be combated islam is in a state of permanent conflict against its enemies and therefore the use of violence to defend your faith is sanctioned within the holy texts and the traditions of islam this is the belief system of jihad these are the three principal contentions that are taking place within the broad sunni fold and uh, this is the this is the principal narrative within west asia however you have a separate narrative which is the uh, confrontation with the shia doctrine here you have two streams that emerged politically separately but have now fused the first was when you had the empowerment of the shia in iraq when the americans intervened in iraq they did so on the basis that they were going to empower the majority shia community this led to a this led to a sunni uprising because sunnis were marginalized and this uprising was jihadi in character and this uprising was supported by the gulf countries as well so you had the emergence of jihad in iraq this this manifestation of jihad in iraq was sectarian in character besides being anti america it was also anti shia the second discourse that emerged after 2011 was in saudi arabia which had strategic concerns relating to the iranians but shaped the confrontation in in sectarian terms so the two separate streams of opposition to the shia one from iraq in the shape of jihad and the other from saudi arabia in the shape of saudi arabia has now fused you find that today the entire political scenario in west asia is shaped by the sectarian divide okay well that's a very comprehensive overview thank you um so just to, just to make it extremely simple then what we were talking about are different uh, uh interpretations of islamic doctrine in particular in saudi arabia there's this Wahhabism, which is tied very closely to a, a, an ancient deal between the ruling family and uh, the, a particular a, a sect of uh, uh, Islamic interpretation, versus other interpretations of Islam within Sunnism, and particularly you mentioned the more modern interpretations, which you know, including things like uh, how the Muslim Brotherhood might interpret it, or how. Uh, uh, you know, other Islamic regimes, for instance, the monarchy in Jordan, they might interpret Islam. They all interpret the doctrine differently. And, and you've also got, uh, as you mentioned, uh, sort of the, the jihadist interpretation applies in Iraq. But, and then all of this is, is also separate from the numerous Shia interpretations of Islam. Uh, and in particular, there's the predominant interpretation in Iran, which is the Twelver Shiism. And all of these uh, compete, or, or are, are the, it's their followers may compete for the, 
for 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 dominance over each other. Um, I want to clarify a major point to you. There are two aspects to to religion. One is personal belief. Personal belief is your relationship with God. This has three manifestations which are universal. The first manifestation is intellectual in the sense that you take faith very seriously. You read the literature relating to the faith and you attend lectures and you are intellectually very engaged with your faith. The second manifestation of your belief <coughs> is mystical or spiritual. That the intellect does not satisfy your urges. That you want to have a very different, indeed personalized engagement with the divine power. And therefore you move into mysticism. Mysticism is also a discipline and it needs a lot of education and study. But it is another aspect of organized religion. The third, which is the most common and indeed the most pervasive aspect of faith is ritualism where most of us have something else which is our priority, our professional life, our personal life, what we do from day to day. But we fulfill certain rituals of our faith. For example, if you are a Muslim, you go to the mosque on Friday, you fast or during Ramadan. If you are a Hindu, you go to the temple in the morning and then in the evening and celebrate some of the festivals. If you are a Christian, you occasionally go, if you are a Catholic, you go for mass, or occasionally you go to the church, and if you are getting married, you have a church wedding, etc. Means you have a rather relaxed attitude to religion, but you are a believer. These are all three ways in which believers manifest their belief. So very, very relaxed, ritualistic, uh, mystical, spiritual, and intellectual. These are the three ways. These have nothing to do with politics. The, the use of faith, because a faith, a religious community, is a community, uh, I mean, you know, religion gives you an identity. Once you have an identity that unifies a community, Certain people would believe that this identity, this common identity, this community can be and should be mobilized for political purposes. So politics intervenes in the religious identity, not in the spiritual or belief systems of the identity. It intervenes in your identity as a community and mobilizes you as a community. This is what every major faith has done. And for example, in the case of Judaism, you have the Zionist movement. In the case of Islam, you have political Islam in its three manifestations. In the case of the Sikh community, you have the Khalistan movement. In the case of the Hindus, you have the Hindutva movement. In the case of Christianity, you do not have it very well organized in Europe because large numbers of people have moved away from faith. But in the United States, it's a very strong movement and it is particularly manifested through the evangelical movement and the evangelicals and the various other movements that are Christian first or various other militant groups that are anchored in extreme interpretations of their faith. So these are political aspects 
of the faith. And this is what, now in the case of Islam, I have mentioned three expressions of this attempt to mobilize the Islamic community for political purposes in order to imbue the political order with the Islam, uh, with Islamic principles. And I mentioned those three to you. <coughs> in the case of the, of the Shia, you have one country, and that is Iran, which from 1979 has created a political order that is very strongly anchored in Shia doctrine and privileges the, the, and privileges the clerics from the Shia doctrine. So it is in that sense very clearly a political movement. Even though they may not talk about it, they may simply say Islam. As you know, the Islamic, I mean, the Iranian leadership never speaks of itself as a Shia movement. It always says that it is an Islamic movement and very often says that there should be no distinction between Shia and Sunni. We are all Muslims at the end of the day. It is not Iran's purpose is not to spread its Shia doctrine. Its, its purpose is to is political. It is, it is interested in spreading its influence as a political entity, like most countries do. Every country in the world, other than possibly Canada, are very interested in promoting and projecting their interest. For example, your, your big neighbor across the border is doing precisely this. So this is what countries do. Countries do two things. Number one, they seek to secure themselves from their enemies. And number two, they seek to spread their influence in the neighborhood and beyond at various international fora. That is what countries do. And that is what Iran is doing. Iran feels itself to be particularly beleaguered <coughs> because it sees itself as consistently under assault. Uh, first in the shape of the Iran-Iraq war, then through the dual containment regime and the sanctions that have been imposed upon it. So it is and consistently it has been threatened with violence from Israel and from the United States, which situation continues to this day. So Iran sees that in order to protect itself and sustain its order, it has to do certain, take certain initiatives. So it truly believes that it is defending itself and defending its revolution. There is no tradition in Islam to have wars of religion. The wars of religion that you had in Europe up to the end of the 30 years war, which ended with the peace of Westphalia, there is no parallel in this regard in Islam. All the wars that took place in the pre-modern period were wars of imperialism. And they were not particularly, except for the very early period when the faith was spread in the first hundred years, all the other wars that have taken place have not been concerned about converting anybody or spreading Islam. They have been primarily aimed at sustaining an imperial order. Well, this concludes part one of our discussion with Ambassador Ahmed. But join us again next time for more. Globalization Cafe is a not-for-profit educational podcast series, but we do have a few overheads, so we'd like to ask you for your support. If you enjoy the podcast series, please subscribe, rate and review and encourage others who might be interested to do the same. 
And if you're feeling particularly generous, head on over to our Patreon page accessible through globalizationcafe.com. Any donation, no matter what the size, would be gratefully received. I'm Dr. Philip Leach-Snow. I edit and produce Globalization Cafe, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the next one.